Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin', brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is New York Times best-selling author Douglas Waller. For almost two decades, Doug covered the Pentagon, Congress, the State Department, the White House, the CIA, and various major conflicts in the Middle East for the likes of Time Magazine and Newsweek. He's the author of ten books, including Wild Bill Donovan, the spy master who created the OSS and modern American espionage, and The Commandos, the inside story of America's secret soldiers. His most recent book is Lincoln's Spies, Their Secret War to Save a Nation, published by our friends at Simon & Schuster. Doug, welcome to the program. It's good to be here. It's an honor to have you here. Uh, My first question for you is... From your book, Commandos, to your first book about Wild Bill Donovan, uh, to this book, Lincoln's Spies, you've written a lot about spies and secret soldiers. Um, What is it that draws you to these stories? Well, I used to cover uh, the intelligence community when I worked for uh, Newsweek magazine and Time magazine. This was the CIA and Pentagon intelligence, which is a hard beat uh, to cover because everything's secret. Uh, So I had somewhat of a grounding in current intelligence, Um, and I started pursuing, really, intelligence history, uh, fell into the job, uh, I guess. Um, One of the things I realized when I was covering the current CIA was there was no shortage of wild, good stories out there. It was the true ones that were in short supply, and you had to spend uh, an enormous amount, uh, and I think any... uh, uh, correspondent or reporter who covers the intelligence community will tell you the same thing. You have to spend a, an enormous amount of time checking and verifying and getting second sources on your on your information. And invariably, you discover that uh, what you thought was uh, accurate uh, and the facts three or four, five, six years later, you know, may not have been the case. Uh, you know, journalism is history uh, every day, rewritten and then written and then rewritten. So I started, uh, I, I started falling into uh, looking at intelligence history or uh, intelligence operations that went on uh, quite a while back. Uh, and my previous two books were about uh, the Office of Strategic Services, and you mentioned Wild Bill Donovan. Um, I did a biography on him and followed up with a book on four of his key aides who later became uh, CIA directors like uh, Alan Dulles. And when you look at uh, look back at a subject and you see uh, you know all the declassified information, you find out that there's a difference you know in what really happened from what uh, got portrayed uh, by books, by movies, by television series, or just by rumor and word of mouth. And uh, that's what I've tried to accomplish in uh, all my books. And the current one, Lincoln Spies, uh, we're going back a long way to, uh, and I'm discovering that, you know, again, there were a lot of wild stories out there, interesting tales. Uh, My job as a historian, I guess, was to separate fact from fiction, from myths, uh, and get to what really happened. I've always found that the true story in any intelligence story uh, report is uh, usually very fascinating and si- exciting. You don't need to doctor it up uh, with a lot of, uh, you know, hypotheticals or assumptions or, you know, just uh, dialing up the action. 
Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, how, if at all, did your interest in spies and secret soldiers serve you while you were covering the Gulf War and conflicts in Somalia and Haiti? Or did your interest arise after this time in your life? Well, it kind of went in tandem in many respects. I wrote uh, 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 the Commandos book uh, shortly after the first Gulf War uh, when the United States uh, you know, entered into Kuwait to drive out Saddam Hussein. And a lot of that reporting uh, helped when I was uh, actually uh, writing for Newsweek magazine. Uh, it gave me a chance to uh, sit back a little bit, take a deep breath, and really look at, for example, what went on in those operations. And as I did other, other books uh, in this area, uh, it gave me a better understanding of you know, what the current uh, situation is uh, and it also uh, put made it had ha, had me have a skeptical eye on a lot of uh, what I was looking at. Just just knowing that uh, very often the immediate story may not be the true one. Uh, it's what historians later on you know accumulate to find out uh, you know what really went on. What what's true history and what's just heritage and myth. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, let's talk about your new book, Lincoln's Spies. Your book opens with a chapter about Alan Pinkerton. Uh, the country is on the verge of civil war. Pinkerton hates slavery and is a fanatical abolitionist. He is an atheist. Uh, what else can you tell us about Alan Pinkerton? He was uh, a dour and humorless man, never told a joke. Uh, he was uh, a tyrant at home uh, with his wife and kids. In fact, he uh, named uh, their three children, gave them names without even consulting his wife. Uh, he was a disciple of phrenology, which is the pseudoscience, the phony medis- medicine that measures your personality and traits by, by the size of your skull, uh, or the size and shape of your skull. Uh, he uh, was a very hard and industrious uh, type of person. He was a uh, uh, he publicized his activities very well. He was really shameless in airbrushing his image. And by the time uh, in early 1861, uh, Pinkerton had built up a nationwide reputation as a private eye and had uh, assembled a very formidable detective agency when he and Abraham Lincoln's cross passed. Thank you so much. And Doug, I want to set up um, another scene from early on in this book. Abraham Lincoln is a newly elected president. Uh, many of the Southern sympathizers who are invested in slavery and the plantation economies believe that the fastest route to success and success for them meant a nullification of the election and perhaps Confederate independence. For them, um, this route is to assassinate this newly elected president. Washington, D.C. is surrounded by Southern states and Southern sympathizers. Uh, Can you tell us about the tremendous difficulties that this presented for President Lincoln and those that surrounded him? It presented enormous difficulties. Uh, Just imagine as Abraham Lincoln is riding in his train from Illinois to Washington to assume the presidency, uh, very soon 750,000 square miles of American territory was going to be cleaved off to form the Confederate States of America. Uh, When he got to Baltimore, uh, which was a secessionist hotbed at that point, uh, uh, Alan Pinkerton, 
basically launched what was a covert operation to get Lincoln through Baltimore without being assassinated. Uh, and Pinkerton had found very credible evidence that uh, Southern sympathizers and secessionists in Baltimore wanted to kill Lincoln so he couldn't be inaugurated. So this is America, an American president who was a, you know, you know, one of the least experienced men to ever uh, assume the presidency, somewhat of a neophyte uh, at it, and he began uh, right before he got inaugurated with a covert operation. Uh, and uh, Pinkerton s succeeded in sneaking him through Baltimore and get him, getting him safely to Washington. Uh, keep in mind, at that point, we had no U.S. Secret Service to guard a candidate or a president. Uh, uh, Lincoln had a few uh, pals with him, uh, some of them armed, to help him take him through. Uh, but this was a very, very daring operation. And can you imagine what went on in Lincoln's mind? Uh, you know, he had a lot going on. Uh, and here he had to sneak into uh, Washington, uh, critics said, almost like a sneak thief, uh, to assume the presidency. Thank you so much, Doug. Um, a life-changing moment for Pinkerton, and you alluded a little bit to this earlier, involved him stumbling onto a counterfeit ring, uh, a stumbling that eventually led to the establishment of his agency, which coined the term private eye. Can you tell us a little bit more about how this came about? Yeah, this was uh, Pinkerton at one point when he, em he emigrated to uh, the United States uh, in the 1840s and first settled in a uh, small town north of Chicago, and he was a cooper, a barrel maker. Uh, but he, uh, when he was getting uh, wood for his barrels on an island at one point, he stumbled upon uh, a counterfeit ring. Uh, it wasn't much of a ring. They were just uh, printing up little dimes at that point, but I guess that was a lot of money back then. Uh, Pinkerton alert, alerted the local sheriff to it, and they raided uh, these uh, criminals there, caught them, uh, and arrested them. Later, the local townspeople asked if uh, Pinkerton would investigate a, a case of counterfeit money. Uh, someone was coming in and spreading phony money. And Pinkerton did, and it managed to run off the culprit uh, and became quite well known. He eventually uh, w uh, went down to Chicago, uh, settled there, worked for the county uh, sheriff's office as a detective, one of the, f the first detectives to, to work there in Cook County, uh, and did that for a while and decided he could uh, uh, do a much better job on his own as a detective force. Uh, and that was really almost a new concept back then. Uh, so, you know, he organized a detective force with another lawyer for the first year and managed to get clients uh, like railroad companies, uh, uh, express companies that had to ship uh, goods across state lines. Businessmen back then uh, did not have protection for their, uh, their property uh, or, you know, or the railroads because they w moved from one county line to another county line. Uh, and the local police uh, forces very often were uh, just <laughs> one step above the local criminals. So Pinkerton supplied a, f a, you know, a very important service there uh, of protection, and that's what he managed to build up into not only a statewide organization, but then a regional organization, and then one that eventually became a national organization. Excellent. Thank you so much, Doug. Um, interestingly, Abraham Lincoln was, at one point, a spy, was he not? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about this? 
Yeah, uh, during the Black Hawk War, 1832, I believe, he uh, worked for a, uh, uh, he, was, he was an officer uh, in, in a local uh, militia, and uh, at one point was uh, working in, a, in well, I think it was a spy company that did reconnaissance operations. So he got a little taste of uh, military intelligence. I, I emphasize a little taste because there wasn't much there. Uh, and even though he was uh, very inexperienced coming into the White House, I mean, he only had one term in Congress and four terms in the Illinois state legislature, he wasn't uh, a complete neophyte when it came to uh, intrigue and subterfuge. He, uh, for example, when he was in a, a very ambitious politician in Illinois, he would routinely write columns under a phony name, a pseudonym, uh, to attack his political opponents. At one point, he uh, secretly bought a German-language newspaper in Illinois to publish uh, puff pieces on him. For the, That was a very important voting constituency uh, in the state. Uh, and when he got to the White House, he immediately asked the Army to start uh, supplying him with daily intelligence reports on what the... Uh, um, what the rebels were up to around the country. He would grill reporters who came in uh, to the White House, and he'd make time to interview them and also Army officers who had been in, uh, in the South or out in the field for information on what was, uh, what was happening out there. Just keep in mind, he had no intelligence service to speak of. Thank you so much. That is so interesting. Uh, listeners, we are going to pause for a moment for a word from our sponsors, and then I will be right back with Doug Waller. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Douglas Waller, author of Lincoln Spies, Their Secret War to Save a Nation, published by Simon & Schuster. Um, Doug, the next gentleman that you write about is George Sharp. Can you introduce us to George? Uh, yeah, he was uh, uh, a very an erudite New York lawyer, very well-educated, uh, well went to some of the finest schools, uh, and graduated from Yale University Law School. Before he set up his practice in his hometown of Kingston, New York, which is on the Hudson River, he spent four years in Europe, uh, first in France, where he uh, mastered the language fluently, and then worked for the legations in Vienna and Rome, where he learned Italian. He returned to uh, Kingston, set up a very lucrative law practice. When the Civil War broke out, he first headed up uh, a militia company and then later was a regimental commander uh, uh, who saw uh, combat and did, uh, did fairly well uh, at it. He was highly thought of by his superiors. General Joseph Fighting Joe Hooker, who finally took over the uh, Army of the Potomac in uh, early 1863, 
found out that uh, George Sharp, who was a colonel by then, spoke French. And Hooker had a book uh, in French on France's secret service uh, system. So he asked uh, Sharp to translate it, which Sharp did fairly quickly. And Hooker was impressed about it, so he made Sharp his spy master for the Army of the Potomac. Uh, Sharp organized a unit, uh, had a very bland name, uh, cover name, uh, that was the Bureau of Military Information, uh, which masked what it uh, really did, which was uh, a lot of espionage and intelligence collection. And Sharp, managed uh, in taking over that organization, even though he had no spy training or you know, espionage experience, he had military experience, uh, he managed to set up a first-class intelligence unit uh, that outpaced anything the Confederates had. Sharp uh, began or created what today is called all-source intelligence. It's kind of a bureaucratic-type term, but what it means is that he collected information not only from his spies that he sent out uh, into Confederate territory, but also from the interrogations uh, people did on uh, uh, Confederate prisoners and deserters. He collected signal intelligence back then, which was uh, intercepts of uh, uh, Morse code transmissions over the telegraph lines uh, or flag signals that they used back then. He uh, cavalry scout reports that came in. He was managed to get those his hands on those too. And he and his staff then uh, would analyze and synthesize and put all this information together to put, uh, uh, to create one of the clearest pictures that Union generals ever had of the Army uh, in front of them. Now, all source intelligence sounds like a, a no-brainer. Why wouldn't any intelligence uh, uh, agency do that? But, but this was a, a new innovation back then. Sharp was, you know, decades ahead of his time in putting this together. So that uh, at one point, even toward the end of the war, as a result of Sharp's intelligence, Ulysses Grant had a, uh, a more accurate idea of Robert E. Lee's forces than even Lee had. Wow, thank you so much. Um, Doug, the next person that you introduce us to is Elizabeth Van Lu. Elizabeth lives in Virginia and is by all accounts disgusted by the beliefs and behaviors of her fellow Virginians. Um, what can you tell us by way of introduction to Elizabeth Van Lu? Elizabeth Van Lu is one of the true heroes in this book. Uh, she was uh, unmarried uh, and in her 40s when the war broke out was considered uh, an old maid by Richmond society. Uh, she uh, uh, was an ardent abolitionist. She was totally repulsed by slavery and human bondage and the beatings she saw slaves undergo uh, in Richmond. Uh, when the war broke out, she first uh, went to Confederate authorities and cajoled them into letting her uh, help the Union war prisoners that were streaming into Richmond with either food or medical care uh, or whatever they needed. That didn't make her very popular in Richmond. In fact, she became a pariah in, in the city, and she got uh, threats from uh, different groups, including Richmond newspapers, that she better cut that out. But Elizabeth was made of very stern stuff, and she didn't. And uh, eventually, her organization and work toward 
helping uh, union prisoners evolved into a, an espionage ring that she set up in Richmond where she collected a lot of details about uh, uh, Lee's army, the movement of troops through Richmond, the movement of troops between Richmond and the Shenandoah Valley, the number of forces, the, uh, uh, the, the level of defenses around the city. Uh, when Ulysses Grant uh, took over the army and then laid siege, siege to Richmond, uh, Elizabeth Van Lu was supplying him with, on an average, of three intelligence reports a week. She also sent him uh, the latest editions of, of Richmond's newspaper and a rose she picked out of her garden for him, which Grant thought was kind of a nice touch for his breakfast table. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Doug. Um, Next is Lafayette Baker, and his family history is my favorite um, because he had a great-grandfather who was oddly named Remember. Remember Baker had a son named Remember Jr., and Remember Jr.'s son, Remember the Third, was Lafayette Baker's father. Um, what can you tell us by way of introduction to Lafayette? Yeah, Baker's uh, ancestry you know, traces back, as you say, to the uh, French and Indian Wars. Uh, he, his father was an insufferably stern Puritan, drove, uh, drove his son nuts, uh, and it made uh, Lafayette Baker an atheist, and he eventually uh, ran away from home in Michigan. Uh, this is when he was 16. He roamed around the country going from town to town, often getting in gunfights and having to flee in the middle of the night because uh, he'd shot somebody. Eventually, he ended up in San Francisco in the 1850s, and found work with a vigilante committee in San Francisco. This was, the city at that point was absolutely lawless, and so a vigilante group organized itself to capture uh, criminals and, in most cases, just execute them right on the spot if they, if they consider them guilty. Uh, so Baker did that for a while and actually enjoyed that kind of work. Uh, he returned to the East Coast just before uh, the Civil War broke out, and eventually ended up in Washington uh, after uh, the attack on Fort Sumter in April 1861, looking for a job. Uh, he went to uh, uh, General Winfield Scott, who was the commander of the Army, the aging commander of the Army, uh, and asked for a job as a uh, Secret Service agent. Scott had no Secret Service to speak of. Uh, I figured he didn't have anything to lose, so he hired this guy and sent him out to uh, look, uh, gather information uh, at Manassas, Virginia, where the Confederates were organizing their forces. Uh, Baker did a lousy job as a spy, uh, but he was a fast talker and managed to convince uh, uh, Scott that he could organize for him a first-class secret service. Eventually, Baker had a uh, uh, set up a, a headquarters in a brick house near near the U.S. Capitol, uh, and he had some 30 detectives, kind of seamy characters, some of them former vigilantes who were skilled in knives and pistols and killing people. Uh, and he organized them into a, not only a counterintelligence force, but a force that would hunt down criminals, contraband uh, runners, uh, counterfeiters, thieves, and whatever. A lot of, most spy masters back then did a lot of basic criminal work along with their cloak and dagger work. Uh, you kind of have to think of Lafayette Baker as Lincoln's J. Edgar Hoover uh, with two important differences. Number one, uh, Baker uh, was not close to Lincoln, even though he claimed, you know, they were thick as thieves. 
uh, whereas Hoover was, you know, worked uh, directly with a lot of presidents. And number two, uh, Baker was far more corrupt uh, than Hoover. His men uh, uh, would arbitrarily arrest people and toss them in jail for weeks without warrants or without, uh, you know, any, any accounting for what they did. They also dipped their fingers in the till and would shake down uh, people they arrested for money and cash. And so Baker, even though he was only paid $7 a day, uh, strutted around Washington in a, a, a black stallion fit for a general, dressed gaudily, and always had a big wad of cash in his pocket and uh, you know, lived or spent a lot of time in fancy hotels. He did so by not only shaking the run, uh, money tree, but also abusing his expense account, like some government officials will do. Uh, he uh, did a good job uh, of you know, rounding up a lot of people, uh, although some, uh, a good many of them were innocent. Where he really failed was in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Baker, he, he wasn't pr responsible for protecting Lincoln, but it was his responsibility to uh, detect threats to Lincoln, which he had many uh, in Washington. He, Lincoln was always kind of a targeted individual. Uh, Baker liked to say that uh, he and his men knew every uh, you know, uh, enemy agent in Washington and could track everybody, but he clearly, that clearly wasn't the case uh, with John Wilkes Booth, who met with his Confederates at a boarding house just nine blocks from uh, Baker's own headquarters. So it was a big failure on his part. He redeemed himself well by capturing his men uh, and a, a cavalry detachment, capturing uh, John Wilkes Booth uh, af after the assassination, uh, fairly shortly after the assassination. Uh, incidentally, Baker was outraged afterwards that he had to split the reward money with the other people that were involved in the raid. He wanted it all for himself. Thank you so much, Doug. And by the way, San Francisco is still uh, pretty lawless, though not so much uh, in the way of public executions, thankfully. Um, back to Abraham Lincoln for a moment. Lincoln, out of necessity, was a ruthless president. Uh, he suspended the right of habeas corpus, allowed the arbitrary arrest and jailing of thousands, shuttered newspapers considered hostile to his war aims, purged officials in Washington's city government if they were deemed disloyal, he was prepared to disband popularly elected legislatures by force if they tried to vote for secession. Can you tell us about this aspect of Lincoln's young presidency? He was fighting for the country's survival. He was trying to save a nation here. Uh, and Lincoln uh, believed that gave him far broader powers than he would normally have in peacetime. Uh, he believed that constitutional restrictions should apply to Congress, but not the chief executive in a time of war where the country was uh, in danger of just splitting apart. So he took a very uh, expansive view there. Now, and he did, a lot of people were jailed, uh, and newspapers were closed down, uh, and legislatures, uh, in many cases, he threatened to dis disband them. He was nervous about that. He didn't do it willy-nilly, uh, and he didn't... Uh, you know, he, he, he worried about the impact uh, of this because it made him not only unpopular, unpopular in the South but also in the North uh, because there were a lot of people who were critical of the war. Uh, so at one point uh, he tried to dial some of it back, but then when Edwin Stanton became Secretary of War, and even Stanton tried to dial it back, 
uh, they eventually began filling up the jails with people arrested uh, just as much uh, as they had earlier. In fact, Old Capitol Prison, which was a, uh, uh, near the, the U.S. Capitol, was uh, the jail where they housed uh, political prisoners and union officers accused of desertion or treason or, or whatever. Uh, and that Old Capitol Prison uh, was always filled with people. Thank you so much, Doug. Um, next, I want to ask you about the evolution of spiesmanship and some of the tactics used early in the war effort seem elementary. Um, speaking misinformation loudly, for example, to throw off eavesdropping enemies. Uh, once these tactics worked, uh, would they ever work again? Uh, yeah, in some, some respects. And that's what I actually found fascinating about this research, that there... Uh, a lot of what was being tested and tried there uh, was going to set the template for today's intelligence community and how you see the, uh, the CIA and spy satellites uh, operate. Uh, you know, when, when, when we think of the uh, Civil War, we think of, uh, you know, desolate battlefields with bodies strewn over, over them uh, with men in mass uh, charging against each other like Pickett's Charge, uh, horrendous casualties. Uh, maybe a Ken Burns documentary with the uh, uh, violin music or a Matthew Brady photograph uh, with soldiers posing stiffly. And that was all there, but underneath uh, that, or in addition to that, there was a revolution in technology and war fighting tactics that occurred uh, during the Civil War that uh, had never been seen before. Things like uh, the railroad which was able to move uh, uh, large quantities of men and, and arms and machines to the front uh, fairly quickly, or the telegraph, which was uh, able to connect uh, battlefields, their commanders with the War Department and generals and, and their headquarters for fairly, very fast communications. Uh, and in addition to this, you had a, a revolution in, in spying technology. I mean, you still had the old cloak and dagger, you know, of spies, uh, work of spies infiltrating, uh, you know, a hostile area and collecting information. But in, this, in addition to that, uh, for example, you had our first uh, really uh, uh, pursuit of uh, signal intelligence, where uh, each side would try to tap the other's uh, 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 telegraph lines or intercept their flag signals when they wave, wave their flags and communicating with each other. Uh, today, that's called SIGINT in modern jargon. Back then, uh, it was really just being tested out. Uh, each side, for example, suspected the other was intercepting its signals. So they uh, developed fairly primitive codes to transmit uh, back and forth. Uh, photography uh, became a, sp a spy tool. Uh, uh, photographers uh, covertly worked with the Union Army, for example, and took photographs of uh, future battlefields uh, where their generals would have to operate. Uh, uh, this was a, a war that saw aerial reconnaissance being used for the first time. Hydrogen gas-filled balloons were developed, mostly by the Union Army, that could ascend, uh, go up in the air uh, as high as 1,000 feet, uh, and a, uh, with an aeronaut dangling underneath uh, with a, on, under, with a uh, gondola to uh, view uh, battlefields ahead of them and uh, also to direct artillery fire on enemy targets. Uh, 
this is really a forerunner of the spy satellites we have today. Uh, their technology back then was fairly crude, but it was fairly sophisticated for them. Uh, the uh, aeronaut in the gondola would either shout down to a, uh, a soldier on the ground what he saw, uh, or he'd use flag signals to signal to him, or sometimes they'd string a telegraph line and he'd tap out Morse code uh, down below. It was also very, very dangerous work for the aeronauts because the Confederates soon figured this out. And as the uh, balloon was ascending up, between about 100 feet or beyond the treetops and about three or 400 feet uh, was in range of uh, Confederate musket fire, and they'd, they'd fire them. Uh, also, when they got up high up, the uh, gondolas tended to spin, or spin around and make them airsick. Mm. Uh, but again, this was a, uh, you know, this was, a, this was aerial reconnaissance that, that we'll use today. In fact, there was uh, one uh, Pennsylvania inventor who proposed to the uh, War Department what today has evolved into what's called aerial drones. And his idea was to have a small balloon take up a, a camera and there would be uh, a line, a metal line strung to it to a person below who could activate a charge that would activate the shutter and take a picture. The union officer reviewed the plan, uh, eventually re rejected it because he couldn't figure out how they could uh, get the camera up there and keep it steady uh, so they could actually take a picture. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Doug. Um, the last question I want to ask um, is because we've had several writers on this program who are either from or have written about West Virginia and have thus gotten um, a few listeners from that area. So um, this is about the separation of Western Virginia from Virginia proper. Can you tell us about this and explain why it was important to the war efforts of the North? Well, it was very important yeah, to both sides. Uh, when Virginia was in initially considering uh, secession from the union, union, Western Virginia opposed it. Western Virginians uh, uh, did not favor it. Uh, slavery was not uh, as prevalent in the Western Virginia or Western part of the state as it was uh, in the center and the eastern part. Uh, Lincoln knew this, and he knew uh, Western Virginia was a prize. So did Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederate States. Uh, and both men sent armies there to, uh, you know, try and uh, one on the Union side to capture it, and on the uh, Confederate side to to, to hold it uh, uh, with seceding uh, Virginia. Uh, in fact, this is where uh, Alan Pinkerton first started working for General George McClellan, who at that time was commander of forces in that area and did a fairly good job. And this is before he took over the Army of the Potomac and the East Coast. Uh, and so Pinkerton uh, did a lot of espionage work and sent uh, people out to scope out uh, the area in western Virginia along with uh, other parts of, of the western theater there, or, or actually it's the midwestern theater uh, around Ohio. Uh, so this was a very, uh, you know, this was strategically an important prize for both men. And Pinkerton, I mean, uh, uh, McClellan managed to uh, capture uh, that area and drive out uh, the Confederate forces and made him a hero. In fact, uh, that that's what helped him helped him become the commander of the uh, Army of the Potomac and eventually the the entire army because he'd done so well in Western Virginia. They thought he could save the uh, save the Union for uh, for Lincoln. Excellent, Doug. Thank you so much, um, listeners. 
I've been speaking with Douglas Waller, author of Lincoln's Spies, Their Secret War to Save a Nation, published by our friends at Simon & Schuster. There is so much fascinating knowledge to unpack in this book that we could have talked for hours. And if you are a fan of history or are curious to learn more of this era, I definitely recommend you pick this book up. Doug, thank you for joining me. Good to be here. Once again, I would like to thank Douglas Waller for joining me. Signed copies of Lincoln's Spies can be purchased in-store at Quail Ridge Books and online at www.quailridgebooks.com while supplies last. I would like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, to get three months of audiobooks for the price of one and support the Bookin' Podcast and Quell Ridge Books. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.